With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So it is uh, way before dawn here in um, New York City, uh, the the land of my birth, for various weird audio reasons, um, technical reasons. I am recording this in GarageBand, in QuickTime, and on my iPhone in the hopes that one of these versions will work. Um, I recently upgraded my computer to the new uh, operating system for Macs, and it doesn't work well with the other audio equipment that I normally use, so we're going to fix that. But anyway, just a little slice of the glamour of uh, self-indulgent, solo monologuing podcastery. So uh, I feel like I've been here forever. I am desperate to go home. I miss my wife. I miss my dogs. Um, I miss my daughter, but she's in school, so that's a different thing. Um, and uh, I miss my own bed. And uh, I've been up here for a couple of reasons. One was the punditry role at CNN, which has been fun and interesting and different, you know, just a different culture. Uh, New York, out of the New York studios of CNN versus the DC studios of Fox. Um, which I had grown fairly accustomed to. Although I have to say that the New York studios of Fox were very different than the New York, than the DC studios too. It's just interesting how you get different cultures. Um, and uh, it's, it's a different experience being a conservative who's sort of expected to criticize Trump rather than being a conservative who is strongly discouraged to criticize Trump when it comes to TV punditry. And that has its own risks and rewards. Anyway, we can maybe get to that if I feel up to it and remember to do it. Um, where to begin? It's been punditry week. Unlike a lot of other podcasts, I haven't done any punditry on here until today because uh, um, <laughs> when I recorded the Ken Pollock thing, I wanted to um, record uh, some alternative content than dissecting the predictable Republican red wave. Um it was predictable. It just was, uh, just didn't happen. And, uh, um, so I feel like maybe we should catch up. We, I think we did a pretty good job yesterday. The best I can recall on the dispatch podcast and all this stuff. Um, problem is I've had so many sort of, of these kinds of conversations that if I repeat myself from that, I apologize, but it's, it's a danger. You know, I did NPR yesterday. I had a gazillion conversations with people in green rooms and that kind of thing. And, um, 
in the dispatch pod. So um, I can't really remember what I've said out loud in public and what I've, or on TV or whatever, and what I'm going to say fresh here, but so be it. Um, so where to begin? Um, I, you know, I covered a lot of this in the G file, which I wrote quickly and dyspeptically from a cigar lounge that I love in New York City, uh, Casa Monte Cristo. Um, but man, side note, I bought a good cigar there, um, more expensive than I would normally buy on a day-to-day basis. It was like a $20 cigar or something like that. With taxes, it's twice that, basically, which is just astounding. I don't remember the taxes in New York for cigars, and I've been here fairly recently. We're that bad, but wow. Um, lots of prices are different in the city here than they are in D.C. that I, I hadn't really noticed before. And uh, it was kind of weird slash fun slash frustrating to uh, write the G file there because, one, I had to do it really quickly. And, two, the place was packed with a certain kind of upscale-ish, upper east side, um, kind of cantankerous white guys um, who were, you know, there's... There were just a certain, a lot of them were a certain type. I, and I can't speak to the ones who were quiet, but the ones who were loud um, were often in error, uh, but never in doubt about the election, about everything that they were talking about. You know, they would, like, like almost every scar shop I've ever been to, conversations would roll from uh, sports to politics uh, seamlessly and, and, um, and, and wildly. And so I'm in no position to judge their vitriol towards the Astros and all that kind of stuff. But it was interesting. It was really, really interesting to listen to them talk, but also very frustrating because it's very difficult for me to write while I'm hearing people express correct opinions about politics. But when people are saying just crazy wrong things and talking about voter fraud, this and whatever that and how um, the election had nothing to do with Trump and being very uh, belligerent about it, it's really hard to resist chiming in, um, and it's really hard to tune out. So I had to have my headphones on really high, um, which is often a problem. But it was also like, if if I didn't have to get the thing done, it was also like really interesting to see how the news filters down um, to folks. Um, I used to do a lot of that kind of eavesdropping in my old cigar shop, but now I know the personalities well enough that I can kind of like uh, adjudicate the, uh, I, I know how to score the players differently. So it's just not kind of the same thing. Um, and then I got also just on this point, I, I got my um, haircut yesterday. I just was uh, walking back to the hotel. I had a little time because I had just had lunch with, I am not making this up. I had lunch with John Pedoritz at Margaritaville in Times Square. Um, and, uh, John was right. The food's better there than you might think. The place is right across the street from his office. He wanted to show it to me and how, how crazy weird the place was. And it is crazy weird. It's in the Margaritaville hotel. Um, I I was less astounded that such a thing exists because I, um, actually stayed in a, a Margaritaville hotel for a speech in Florida a couple of years ago. It's a, it's a, big, strange country we live in, people. Um, um, but I'll probably save the rest of the Margaritaville 
conversation for the Globa podcast, except to say that I think Pod and I missed the opportunity to make um, maybe even dozens of dollars because they had at the restaurant uh, a uh, photographer who was offering a free postcard with a picture of, of, of diners at the Margaritaville uh, restaurant, maybe even Photoshopped with funky middle-aged crisis hats or something like that. And they offered to take a picture of us and we declined. And then I was like, you know, I think there actually might be uh, a small amount of demand for that picture out there. We could have, we could have paid for this lunch. Um, so anyway, uh, when I was at the barbershop, it was interesting because uh, I was listening to uh, some regulars in there. It was, it, it's hard for me to explain without trafficking in wild ethnic stereotypes about New York City, but it was a certain kind of slightly higher barbershop with like, I don't know if they're all Italian, but that was sort of the vibe. Um, Italian, Irish guys who like, who were like salesmen and like to get manicures and that kind of stuff. And, um, and the owner of the place was your sort of, you know, typical small businessman, um, whatever. And it was funny, like this one guy, very loud guy comes in, uh, doesn't want a haircut, just wants his manicure. Um, and, uh, I'm, I will never really understand male manicure culture, but that's just me. Um, and, uh, the owner of the place starts talking with him and saying, you know, uh, wow, the Republicans blew it last night. And the guy, the, the customer is like, yeah, I told you, I told you. And then he starts saying, have you listened to the Ben Shapiro podcast? <laughs> and, um, and he was like, go download that. It'll tell you why Republicans lost in every race. I was like, well, props to Ben Shapiro for market penetration. Um, but anyway, over the course of just sitting there, and I am an inveterate eavesdropper on this kind of stuff, two or three customers, the owner, they all talked about how Trump had outlived his usefulness. One guy who was sort of your classic, um, you know, I don't know if he was in a boat parade, but the sort of the New York City version of that was there. And uh, he was just sort of saying, if Trump's lost us, uh, he's got nobody left, right? These guys were clearly once big fans of his, but they were all talking about how he, he really blew it in this election and he's his own worst enemy. And if I had to adjudicate between the loudmouths at the cigar shop and the loudmouths at the uh, barbershop um, about who's better at politics, I have to say it was the loudmouths at the, at the barbershop. Uh, to wit, Trump deserves an enormous amount of blame here. And I got into some of this in the G-File. I got into some of this on the Dispatch podcast. But just simply to review, it is... Uh, one of the great frustrations over the last seven years, um, and particularly since he left office, um, actually, no, particularly since Trump's midterms, um, is the way in which people think that you're, I want to be very clear, I, I've lost the ability to really root for the GOP um, in any sustained, consistent way. I can root for certain GOP politicians or a certain GOP legislative effort or whatever, or maybe a GOP appointee. But as for the party itself, um, 
I would want, you know, like the thing needs wholesale purges of, of jackasses and, and, and grifters as far as the eye can see. But anyway, what's still nevertheless been frustrating is the way if you criticize Trump, you get called, you know, a rhino that you're not a real Republican. You're not a real conservative. You're not putting the party first. You're not um, a team player and all this kind of stuff. And even when the criticisms of Trump are all about how he is none of those things, how he doesn't care about the party, he doesn't care about conservatism, uh, he doesn't want to build the party, he just wants to intensify the party's commitment to him and nothing else. And, um, you know, like we saw this in the aftermath of the 2018 midterms where he gives a press conference basically attacking the Republicans who lost and claiming that they would have won if they had embraced him. Um, and, you know, this is did not embrace, did not embrace after each person who lost, um, including, I can't remember her name, but she was the first black female uh, Republican from Utah uh, who lost her congressional race. She seemed like a real up and comer. And now I can't even remember her name. Um, no need to email me. I will f- remember it moments after I finish this podcast. And the idea that some of these Republicans in 2018 lost because they didn't embrace Trump enough rather than because they were tainted by their association with Trump in the first place was just transparently stupid. Um, You know, and fast forward to the last two years, Trump time and time and time and time and time and time and time again um, targets Republicans who are insufficiently loyal to him, even if it means giving those seats or those state houses to Democrats. You know, he would rather a smaller Republican Party with his unchallenged, unquestioned uh, rule than a larger, more successful, more popular Republican Party um, in which he was still a major player. And you, you see this throughout the primary system. You know, he, he um, did everything he could to bump off, first of all, anybody who voted for impeachment, he tried to bump off Kemp and Raffensperger. Um, he, uh, you know, attacked Joe O'Day weeks before election day for not embracing the election lies stuff. Um, you know, sort of as an echo of the do not embrace thing. Uh, he blamed uh, Bullduck in New Hampshire's loss on the fact that Bullduck didn't embrace and, and stay committed to the uh, election fraud argument. Um, and just the idea that, you know, a guy, I can't remember what the final number is for Bulldog, but he lost, I think, like by 10 points or something that, uh, you know, that a on again, off again, election denying uh, inexperience, uh, borderline crackpot Republican Trumper candidate um, lost in New Hampshire because he wasn't sufficiently confused committed to the election uh, fraud stuff is just so transparently dumb and not true. And I just bring this up because this is this great frustration is like this criticism of Trump is not politically sophisticated or complicated. It is something that was obvious 
for years. And it, but if you made it, people said, oh, you just don't get it. He's playing at a different level. Um, you, you don't fight. You're a Romney, Rhino, Squish, blah, 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 blah. And so it's a very weird feeling to see kind of like the trance starting to lift in all sorts of places. You know, it's like, you know, I wrote this kind of influential piece at the time uh, about comparing the, the, the slow rolling transformation of the GOP to a Trumpist party back in 2016. Um, I compared it to the invasion of the body snatchers and it's, it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, people are starting to snap out of their, um, their pod people thing. Now that doesn't really make sense in the context of the actual movie because the actual human beings are gone and the pod people are doppelganger replacements, not actual, the, not the actual people, but you get the point. It's like the mass hypnosis is wearing off in certain quarters. And on the one hand, I, I certainly welcome it. I think it's good. Um, um, at the same time, it's just weird to have the driver of it be this utterly obvious and banal observation about how Trump is bad for his party because he boosts uh, suck-up loyalist vassals at the expense of qualified candidates. And... Um, um, it's just really, I, I have to fight the urge to just run around with a cowbell and a sandwich board screaming, I told you so, a little bit. But that's just only one facet of how Trump has been bad for the GOP and how that is manifest in this election, right? I mean, we've been through a bunch of times, you know, Doug Ducey would have would have won that Senate seat in a cakewalk. Um, Pat Toomey would still have to work for it, but he would have been reelected. Um, uh, Chris Sununu would have won in New Hampshire running away. Uh, you can just go down the list. Um, the, the politicians who were run off or discouraged um, to, to throw their hat in the ring for these Senate seats this time around, and, and a bunch of governor seats I get, too, I guess, who just thought it wasn't worth being put through the ringer in primaries or attacked by Trump without any warning or without any good reason um, that it just wasn't worth doing is the difference between the Republicans celebrating the fact that they have 54 seats in the Senate right now versus the fact that Republicans may not even get control of the Senate. Um, but it's also that the kind of politics that Trump has encouraged the um, obnoxious, pugnacious um, assholery of the MAGA crowd, the permission structure to be jerks all over the place, turns off marginal voters. You know, it just, it discourages the, the, the voter who'd be inclined to vote for you for, on taxes or crime or inflation or whatever um, because they don't want to vote for crazy people or they don't want more chaos. That's all Trump's doing too. Um, I say all Trump's doing, uh, you know, the mark wants to be conned. Uh, a lot of other people deserve their fair share of blame. But 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 Trump was the um, was the Alka-Seltzer tablet that made everything so fizzy with asininity. 
Um, and, and then there's, uh, we talked about this on the dispatch podcast, you know, Republicans used to be better at, 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 at mail-in voting. That used to be our thing. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not a Republican anymore, but you know, you get my point. Um, it used to be, and it was, it was great because Republican voters were older and, you know, more things could go wrong, getting old people to the polls. Um, the more uh, votes you bank before election day, the more insurance you have against things going wrong, either with your campaign, right? Some October surprise thing matters much less if you've got 40% of your vote already banked and, you know, bad snow or bad rain matters less if people have already voted. Now, I don't like early voting and I'm consistent on this. I've been writing against the sort of rolling election months and election weeks for a long time. Uh, but, you know, if those are the rules in your political party, you should take advantage of them. And it was, it was amazing. It was like, I've seen it now, I think, on every network where they say, or I've seen some reporter, I'm not trying to like lie to anybody, they just got it wrong, say, you know, traditionally Republicans vote on election day and Democrats are more likely to vote by mail. If this is a grand political tradition, it begins in 2020 um, because this is just, you know, part of it comes from COVID, but most of it comes from the fact that Trump has told Republicans that they'll steal your vote if you vote by mail, that you're not a, you're not a truly patriotic, loyal Republican unless you vote on election day. And so much of that had to do with, with Trump's plan to spin uh, the lie that he was going to steal the election. And it has altered campaign dynamics for a long time to come. And it's incredibly stupid. Um, if, you know, the best sort of illustration of this, and I don't, I, I don't know this for sure, but everyone says that uh, the Fetterman campaign did a really good job of loading up uh, early voting and then they put the debate as close to election day as possible. And again, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that if the debate had been earlier or if they hadn't banked so many votes, uh, Mehmet Oz would have won in, in Pennsylvania because a lot of people saw that debate and were like, ooh, I didn't realize the stroke was uh, that bad. But again, this is just another example about the tactics of the party the sort of nuts and bolts campaigning stuff has been hurt by Trump and you add it all together. And there are, and there are other aspects of it too. You know, it's just sort of the, the damage he has done to sort of uh, right, right wing information channels, conservative information channels has been profound. And I'm not going to get into a media criticism and Fox bashing thing here, but um, you know, it is just, the, the, the level of tolerance for build, for pumping uh, bad information, exaggerated information, half-truths, uh, you know, uh, debunkable narratives, that kind of thing, uh, all stems from, you know, the need to talk around the fact that Trump, you know, was spewing lies and BS. And it's sunk in. I mean, there's this whole infrastructure now, the Benny Johnson, Charlie Kirk crowd. Um, 
They're pumping out nonsense daily. People forget OAN began as an attempt with almost a dispatchian mission to play it straight and to, you know, uh, and not uh, be irresponsible. And they got seduced by the, um, the ability to monetize uh, the, the, the sort of the crazier than Fox Lane, the more pro-Trump than Hannity Lane. Um, and they got corrupted totally by it. Uh, Newsmax was always sort of like that because it's, you know, it was Chris Ruddy thing and whatever. But these channels have like, they have purchase in, you know, the, the, the base's mind um, all because of Trump. And that has, that redounds outward in all sorts of ways um, that make the Republican Party weaker, not stronger. The GOP will take the House, at least that's how it looked as of, I haven't seen any news this morning because I just basically woke up, got coffee and did this because I want to get on the road. Um, by the way, Pippa, our English Springer Spaniel, silly girl, is having her surgery today um, to have a tumor removed. Um, it's benign, but it's in a weird location, so we're a little concerned. Plus, Pippa has um, crazy, crazy fear and anxiety about the vet, so it's just not going to be a great day for her. Um, but anyway, so I think the Republicans take back the House uh, by a very narrow margin. Uh, it looked last night like it might be even narrower than the Democrats, Democrats margin. Um, I think there is a real chance that McCarthy doesn't get to be speaker or if he does get to be speaker, he will be um, the Liz Truss of uh, American politics and be there for a very short period of time. Um, I made that prediction on air three, four days ago. And back then it still looked like the Republicans, I made that prediction before uh, the votes ran. I made it on election day or early in the morning when people still basically thought there might be a, uh, so where people still thought the red wave thing was real. Um, because I think Trump, I've always thought, I think I've said this on here a bunch of times, always thought that Trump would screw McCarthy um, and make his life miserable once he got uh, the gavel. And uh, and now it's just like institutionally, just you look at the math. I, I, I think I was talking to an ex-congressman uh, yesterday about some of this stuff. You can get a, a list of four or five Republicans who wouldn't vote for, who, who might not vote for McCarthy in the first round. And as, at least as of right now, that's all it would basically take. Um, and so, you know, McCarthy is going to have to sell off pieces of himself to, um, you know, maybe not Matt Gates because Matt Gates is so, is so committed to saying he'll never vote for him. But that crowd, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene crowd and all those folks, uh, he may have to make commitments to those people that make him look, and the Republican Party, absolutely ridiculous. And again, this is this also is part of the damage that Trump has wrought. You know, the fact that you know, the Republican Party, which, I mean, that's the thing, right? The Republican Party should be the sensible, boring party. It should be because it's the conservative, it's supposed to be the conservative party. It is supposed to be 
the grown-up party that worries about debt and deficits. You know, Chris Matthews, flawed dude, all sorts of ways. I think he was the first one to introduce this. Um, definitely was in the, in the 90s for the conversation that I recall. You know, he used to talk about how the Democrats were the mommy party and Republicans were the daddy party. And what he meant by that is like, you know, the, the, the Democrats are the ones who nurture you. They pick you up and they kiss your knee when you scrape it. They're the ones who care about like um, providing all the comforts, you know, of government, um, um, the sort of the health and welfare stuff. And Republicans are the daddy party in the sense that they're the ones who go around the house at night when everyone else is in bed and turn off all these damn lights. Right. And make sure all the doors are locked. They're the ones who worry about the long term problems that are boring and difficult. Uh, I'm not saying that they've done a good job of it. I'm not saying they even did a good job of it in the 90s, but that's just sort of the role that they're historically supposed to play because they're conservative. So there's something almost even more disturbing and off-putting when that party is full of crazy people. Um, It just makes people feel even more unsafe. And so you're going to have, again, because of Trump, Kevin McCarthy making deals with, and or and forget it, it may not be Kevin McCarthy. It may be Scalise or somebody else. But whoever gets that job, the only way they get that job is by cutting deals with uh, the, the gym rat frat bro um, and own the lib jackwads of the House Freedom Caucus um, and the, and the, the, the lunatics of the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus. And, um, um, and that's going to have brand problems for the GOP going into 2024. Look, I actually think, contrary to, you know, a lot of my strange new respect friends, uh, that Hunter Biden is a perfectly legitimate thing to look into. That doesn't mean the way the Republicans are going to look into it, the way the Republicans talk about it, uh, the way uh, um, a lot of right-wing media talks about it is legitimate or smart or serious. But this is the son of the president. The president has lied about his knowledge and relationship with his, with his incredibly, you know, and tragically sketchy, um, sleazy, and corrupt son. And there is, just, there is a no universe um, imaginable where... Democrats and liberals wouldn't think looking into uh, the son of a president going the other way in, in, in a similar situation didn't have some merit, right? I mean, certainly looking into the, the Trump family business um, and, and all of that was fair game for every progressive journalist and news outlet. Um, they didn't do hearings on, uh, you know, Don Jr. and and whatever the hell the other guy's name, whatever Kuse's name is. Certainly people think, thought that was fair game. And like, uh, so I, anyway, my only point is, is I think that getting into Hunter Biden's stuff is legitimate, right? I mean, like it just is. Uh, the guy was on the board of a sketchy company, all that stuff, right? Make turning, you know, Hunter Biden into the Benghazi hearings, really stupid. And making it the the central argument about, you know, why Republicans need to win in 2024, as I think some people will, or making it the centerpiece of various, you know, not quite QAnon, uh, but 
QAnon adjacent conspiracy theories is it theories is idiotic. And um, but that, you know, if you want to get Matt Gates to uh, sign on to your speakership, you're going to have to agree to some crap like that. And it may not be that you have to agree to have this hearing or that hearing, but you have to agree to give these guys the power to have the hearings that they want to have. And that's bad for the brand. Again, everything terrible about what is happening in, I shouldn't say everything, one of the key drivers of everything that sucks in our politics has to do with institutions not doing their jobs, Congress not doing its job properly, parties not doing their jobs properly. It is to do with the weakness and corruption of institutions, not the strength of institutions. If Congress were stronger and better and doing regular order stuff, uh, I talked. To, I think I talked about this last week. You know, if they had committee hearings where legislation bubbled up from below through uh, negotiation and compromise and argument and debate and witnesses and whatnot, rather than imposed from above, Congress would be stronger. Uh, if the parties exercised their ability to to uh, to winnow and edit the field of candidates better, the parties would be stronger. You know, I mean, when when Mitch McConnell has a free hand in candidate selection for uh, Senate races, Republicans tend to win. When Mitch McConnell has to placate a bunch of gateway pundit Fox News comment section um, jackwads and uh, and and mobs, you get Herschel Walker. Right. And I and I. I hate disagreeing with, with, with Jim Garrity about this because I, I love Jim. I truly do. And, and he knows and is better about this punditry stuff than I am by orders of magnitude. But he keeps, keeps arguing that, like, Herschel Walker um, was uh, not Trump's fault because he was going to get the nomination no matter what. And he's right about that, right? I mean, his joke is, is that the second uh, Herschel Walker won the Heisman Trophy in, what was it, 83 or something like that, um, 82, uh, he was going to win this nomination. That's true. If you take it as a foregone conclusion that he would have run for the Senate at all um, without Trump. And I just don't think that's true. Trump, Trump publicly lobbied him to run. He privately lobbied him to run. Yeah, Mitch McConnell went along with it because he agreed with Jim's analysis that once McCarthy, once Herschel Walker announced that he was going to uh, run for Senate, he was going to win that primary. The problem is, is that he entered the primary and, um, and that's on Trump and the Trump crowd, right? Uh, this whole infatuation with celebrity candidates over quality candidates, um, never mind qualified candidates. Um, that's all the Trump legacy too. And, um, so anyway, the, the, the house is going to be a hot mess it's going to be great fun to watch in a schadenfreudtastic kind of way. Um, nothing is nothing significant is going to get done except maybe some of the, you know, the must pass stuff like debt ceiling and whatnot. That's fine by me. I'm, I'm on team gridlock. I, what I do think is kind of interesting and worth taking a second to talk about is the obsession with straight line predictions about the future. I've written a bunch about this. Um, Orwell has a great essay about this in, in an essay called Second Thoughts and James Burnham. 
I've I've written it, written about it a few times over the years. He Orwell sees you know straight line predictions that you know the current trends will continue in a straight line off into the future um, as a form of power worship. I think there's a lot of truth to that, uh, but that's sort of a more metaphysical conversation for another day. In this context, um, what I'm really sort of getting at, I guess, is that people think that every victory is all upside for the winner and every loss is all downside for the loser. I don't think that's that's true. Uh, Charlie Cook did a good thing on this a couple of years ago about how in some ways it might be good for the Republican Party that they lost in 2020 because we were heading into some really uh, turbulent times uh, with supply chains and inflation and all that. And, um, and not having ownership of all of that might be good for Republicans in the long term. Certainly it was good for Republicans to not have a Trump second term, particularly on the, uh, in the way that Trump tried to get it at the end. And um, similarly, like, I think I'm generally elated about these results. I would rather, I have to admit, I would rather see Mitch McConnell control the Senate for the next two years than Republicans control the House. First of all, I just think Mitch McConnell is a more grown up and serious person. I also think that it would be better for um, a lot of the things I care about. Um, where I'm more aligned with Republicans for the Senate to be in Republican hands because that's where confirmations come, you know, from in terms of uh, judges and all the rest. Uh, but regardless, you know, the next two years are going to be ugly. Not a lot's going to get done. Uh, we got high inflation and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the Republican Party desperately, desperately, desperately needs to purge this Trump nonsense. And this midterm was very helpful for that, particularly in the way that Ron DeSantis delivered a red wave in Florida, but Trump got in the way of a red wave wave everywhere else. Um, That's a very useful fact pattern for this effort to sort of wean the party of Trump. I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, And I gave him grief for it. And probably shouldn't have on Twitter, um, what's his name, um, Pompeo did one of these subtweeting Trump things about where he said, conservatives are elected when we deliver, not when we just rail on social media. That's how we can win. We fight for families and a strong America. Now, obviously this was a shot at Trump because Trump, you know, was doing his escape cocaine monkey stuff on, on his, on truth social last night, saying crazy things. And, and I, tweeted that Pompeo was brave adjacent. And I think that's true, but I also think like it's the sarcasm is that it wasn't actually brave for him to do this. It was adjacent to brave. And so, I mean, I'll defend that, but like um, the truth is, is that this is a positive sign and I probably shouldn't just be giving him grief about it. Uh, you know, when it's a baby steps kind of thing, this process would not have happened if the Republicans had a big red wave this week. If they had, if they gained 25, 40 seats, like people were talking about, um, I never believed really the 40 seats, but I know I, I really thought they were going to have sort of a historically normal midterm and get like 20 to 25 seats, that kind of thing, and pick up a couple Senate seats. 
it wasn't necessarily wishful thinking on my part. It was more just like, that's how this stuff goes. Um, but I was wrong. But anyway, so the, this is good for the Republican Party. It's a good emetic, like Trump's planned uh, announcement next week just looks a lot lamer and weaker and dumber than it would have if Republicans had won. And this is good for the Republican Party um, long term, even though short term, it's bad and it's bad for the, you know, for some policy stuff, too, I guess. Um, then maybe not. Um, on the flip side, I think this was actually like this is good for Biden. But this sort of just this illuminates the space between what is good for specific partisan politicians, including presidents. Um, sorry for all the alliteration. Um, and what is good for the institutional interests of a party. I honestly, I just sincerely think Biden will be a disaster if he runs again in 2024. Um, um, certainly, I think if he runs against a non-Trump Republican, like if it's DeSantis or Chris Sununu, who I think is really good, um, or all sorts of people, Asa Hutchinson. I mean, you can go down the list. There are a lot of Republicans that I just think would have a very easy time beating Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And also, I got to say, look, I, I think Trump is toxic. Trump has uh, this the coalition that won on on Tuesday uh, was not a Biden coalition. Biden's coalition is a minority coalition in this country. But Biden's coalition plus the uh, anti-crackpot, anti-Trumpy, anti-MAGA coalition. Um, and also, you got to for intellectual honesty's sake, plus the sort of pro-abortion rights coalition, that's a majority coalition. And, um, um, but so this idea, so even with that said, at least the logic of why Biden and Biden supporters think Biden could beat Trump again, I just don't buy. He might be able to beat Trump again, although it's a big risk to put Biden on, you know, an 82-year-old, which is, I think, what he'd be in 2024, who's clearly fading. Um, it's a big risk to use him as the foil because I just don't find that the argument for why he can beat Trump um, very persuasive. Uh, again, he maybe he can beat Trump, right? But like he could also fall down on the campaign trail and then you have Kamala Harris, who I'm not sure could beat Trump. Um, but, you know, their argument is, well, he beat him before. Yeah, okay. Lots of politicians who beat other politicians then subsequently lost to those politicians. That's not like, <laughs> that's, you know, past performance is not a predictor, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Second of all, the circumstances in which Joe Biden won, and he won really narrowly, you know, he won, I think, you know, I mean, yeah, he won the popular vote by a big number. But in the Electoral College, his victory in some ways, you know, I know it was, I, it was, 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 was narrower than Trump's um, uh, in those battleground states. You know, the number of votes, you know, 11,000 in Georgia, I think 11,000 in Arizona, whatever it was in those others, uh, you, you know, he, he almost lost in the Electoral College. Um, um, and the argument that he made was, you know, implicit. No one was paying attention to, like, his progressive wish list stuff and whatever was on his website. Um, he wasn't campaigning on a new, new deal back then or any of that kind of stuff in part because 
he expected to be having a Republican Senate, um, which would have been much better for his presidency. My God, would it have been better for his presidency um, if he had to get stuff over Mitch McConnell's you know, desk, plate rather than AOC's plate. But um, uh, his big pitch was that he was the return to normalcy guy. He was the competence guy. And I understand that if you want to read his resume as president, you can find the argument that the competence is there, but you can also find the argument that it's not. And, um, uh, and he hasn't overseen a return to normalcy. Uh, you know, forget that more people died of COVID on his watch than on Trump's. I think that's kind of an unfair jab, but you hear it quite often. Um, you know, inflation, crime, all that stuff was on his watch. He seems out of touch. Afghanistan was on his watch. Um, he's been very partisan in part, again, because structurally he kind of felt he had to, um, to bring his party along. Um, but he hasn't been the uniter. He hasn't been the unifier. He hasn't been the reach across the aisle guy. And that was his pitch in 2020 against Donald Trump. He's actually governed in a, you know, less bombastic, less obnoxious, which is not to say not completely unobnoxious way than Donald Trump did, but he's been a very partisan president, uh, pushing a unilateral partisan line. And he doesn't have the ability to be all things to all people the way he was um, in 2020. He is now, everyone's impression of him is informed by what they see as president. And the idea that he can like rerun the same playbook that he ran in 2020, where he basically ran, you know, he wasn't on a campaign trail much, you know, he ran from his basement, all that kind of stuff. Couldn't do that again. It's just a different strategy. And I just think it's just an incredible Hail Mary to think that it's obvious that Biden can beat Trump again. But now the ability to say Biden should step down or walk away, which lots of Democrats believe. I mean, lots. Someone told me that um, Axelrod was on TV gently suggesting this pretty strongly the other night. Um, um, but uh, I've talked to a lot. Of, you know, one of the one of the interesting things is you get to talk to a uh, a, a more diver- ideologically diverse crowd um, when you spend your time in CNN green rooms versus your time in Fox green rooms. Um, and uh, um, there are a lot of activist Democrats who want Biden to say, I did my job. I saved the country. I was a bridge to a new generation of leaders. Take a bow and walk off stage, right? Do the um, George Costanza leaving them wanting more kind of thing and walk off stage. And it's not just the activists and, and, and insiders. Uh, it's in the polls. I mean, there's like a super majority of people under 30 don't want them to run again. A majority of Democrats don't want them to run again. I'm sure those numbers will tick up better, but his approval rating in all of these states where Democrats won is still like 40%. And the argument that uh, he should um, bow out is just much harder to make now if he decides to run again. If he thinks he's up to it and, and um, Jill Biden, I just have a real hard time with that Dr. Jill crap. If Jill Biden can't convince him uh, to spend more time with his grandkids, I think the Democrats are going to be in a rough shape um, in 2024 if they had, if they had had the shellacking, right? Um, 
the introspection that they, the Democrats need to do would be, um, would be turbocharged. Now this gives everybody permission to say, we did nothing wrong. Uh, we don't need to change. It's the other people who need to change. And the, the truth is, is that every, everybody needs to change. Both parties suck. Um, they suck in their own ways and their sins are not symmetrical and blah, 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 blah. Let's not do the whole both sides, you know, caveat thing. But the Democratic Party has deep and abiding problems. And the Republican Party has deep and abiding problems. I think that one of the things that people don't really appreciate, I hear the whataboutism thing. It, I find it incredibly frustrating. Maybe I'm a broken record on this. But the whataboutism thing, I don't think people really appreciate the corrosive, destructive dynamic to it insofar as when one side is inconsistent or hypocritical um, or has a double standard, it gives the other side the psychological permission to do the same thing. And so every time the bad behavior of one side creates sort of a permission cascade, if that's a term, for the other side to stoop to the, to the, the, to stoop to the perceived low level of the other side. You would not have, I mean, imagine how much harder it would be to, not like I think it's hard on the merits to defend anything about January 6th. I think it's, I, I, I think Trump should have been impeached if there would have been zero violence on January 6th. If, his, if he had just stuck to the alleged original plan of just sending a huge mob of people to intimidate Congress, that's impeachable. That's outrageous. The fact that the mob, which was quite foreseeable, turned violent and riotous um, makes it all worse. But I just think, you know, that was terrible. My point is, imagine how much harder it would be to defend what actually happened on January 6th if you hadn't had a year of people making apologies or dismissing concern about, um, or even at the margins supporting uh, the, the George Floyd riots. And when I make this point to progressives, they're like, oh, we didn't support it, whatever, but you know, George Floyd was a real outrage. You have to understand people's anger. Um, most of the protests were peaceful. You hear all that stuff. And all of those points have some, some merit to it. They still don't in any way, shape, or form justify or um, ameliorate or uh, absolve people setting fire to bodegas and, and you know, and so other small businesses, um, setting fire to cop cars. Um, and you can say that was all different. If you're a progressive, it's perfectly fine. And you're, it's probably in, it's probably totally consistent to your own ideological worldview to say that stuff was totally different. Storming the Capitol is totally different. Um, anger at racial injustice is totally different. That's all fine for you to say. There are strong arguments and, and weak arguments to support you. But my point is, is that millions of Americans don't see it that way. And instead they see the New York Times, and 
MSNBC and various folks at CNN um, condoning or turning a blind eye to wanton violence. And, um, and that gives those people a reason to tune out criticism when their side commits violence, when you have something like January 6th. It's like, well, you know, you don't like it when our people do this, but you didn't say anything when your people did this. And there are strengths and weaknesses, dumbassery and legitimate debating points to that response. But none of them touch the actual moral question of was January 6th right or wrong? Forget who's criticizing it. Forget the, forget the hypocrisy of what uh, you think is the selective moral outrage here. Was what happened on January 6th outrageous and condemnable or was it not? And my view is it clearly was. And so was the burning of gas stations and the burning of, you know, Korean grocery stores. Um, and it doesn't matter to me that these are not perfect analogs or mirror images of each other. It is different to uh, storm the Capitol and take a dump in the halls of Congress um, and to threaten to hang the vice president of the United States if he does his constitutional duty. That's very different than setting fire to a target. Sure. Kevin Williamson has a great line about this, and I can't remember what it is. But it doesn't mean setting fire to a target is good, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's, like, it's my long-running joke about our, our point about how, you know, people get mad when I say, you know, uh, you know Trump isn't Hitler. Um, you know, and I have that joke, you know, like Trump wasn't, Trump isn't Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. But there are people who like literally think I'm coming to the defense of Trump when I say he's not Hitler. As if anything shy of being Hitler is a compliment, right? It's like, you know, you can be a perfectly good and decent person, a perfectly tolerable person until you cross the line into being Hitler. Um, and, you know, in my moral universe, you know, Hitler is way at the end of the bad guy spectrum. And you can be in bad guy territory without being anything like Hitler. Um, you know, and similarly, you can say that January 6th was much, much worse. All that kind of stuff, threat to democracy, threat to the Constitution, you know, whether that's exaggerated or not on the merits, we can have that conversation another time. It was terrible. It doesn't, there's no, it could be the worst single event in human history. It doesn't make beating people up in public and setting fire to small businesses good. And when you have people who are so partisan, so tribal, so determined to attack the messenger whenever they're criticized, it puts it upon, it makes it incumbent upon you to behave in a way and to talk in a way that makes it difficult for them to do that. And this is, you know, this gets to the, Please, if you can, go back to the the podcast I did with Yuval about all of this. I mean, I, I really think it was one of the best conversations I've had on here in the history of the podcast. Um, um, it gets to the heart of this question. What's my role? What am I doing here? And um, 
you have so many people uh, who don't ask that question of themselves. And, um, you know, this point I made about, uh, you know, Edmund Burke, his concern about the, the East India Company and what was going on there. Um, yeah, I th- you know, he was concerned about the human rights of the, of the, of the, uh, the native populations in Bengali in these various places. The most interesting part of his argument was that the way the British Empire was behaving in those colonies was bad for the souls of the British, um, which is a really different kind of point, right? I mean, we're supposed to think about colonialism and all that stuff as as bad for the, the natives of that area, right? Um, the indigenous people of that area, the, um, the conquered. And the, obviously there's a lot of morally significant and persuasive merit to those concerns. I'm not dismissing that stuff. But what you get, what gets lost is, is like, what does it do to the souls of the quote unquote oppressors? What is it doing to the souls of Russians, for example, in Ukraine to be um, murdering and torturing people all over the place? Um, so stealing the, you know, the washing machines from grandmothers. Um, I have much more sympathy for the grandmothers, but it's worth thinking about um, what it is doing to the Russian soul to be, to be so barbaric and grotesque. And similarly, it's worth thinking about like what it does to the souls of, of, politi- of political leaders and just sort of rank and file partisan people that they engage in the kind of politics that they do. I mean, I got into a stupid spat, spat with Rick Grinnell yesterday. He lied about some position I took and, and, and was very angry that I wasn't being that kind of hack that he is. And I used to like Rick Grinnell. I'm sure he's still personally charming. Um, but I think about what has happened to that guy after serving in the Trump administration and getting high on, on Newsmax green room farts, um, what's happened to the guy's soul. And you can see this all over the place. If, you know, every now and then I, 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 I watch these clips on Twitter of the, that terminally unfunny quote unquote comedian, uh, Crowder, Steve Crowder or the conversations or the monologues from Charlie Kirk and uh, the really dumbass stuff from Benny Johnson and that whole crowd. I knew Benny Johnson a little bit. He briefly worked at NR. It was not a good fit. And I didn't think we should have probably brought on a guy who lost his job because of plagiarism. We didn't let him write stuff, but he was good at um, the, the social media stuff. And, you know, it was early on. Anyway, it wasn't my decision. I think it was good that we parted ways, but he was a nice guy, you know, and I, at the beginning of Charlie Kirk's transformation into, um, a, uh, Tucker Carlson impersonator without the talent, um, lots and lots of people would tell me, oh, you got to meet Charlie. He's, He's a really great guy. He's doing great work. Um, really smart, um, really decent, whatever. I got into some really heated um, text exchanges with mutual friends when I started criticizing him. Um, 
I even got into similar sort of fights with friends um, about that Milo guy um, who I never met um, when I started criticizing, criticizing him. And like, anyway, I know some of these people we have, we had or have lots of friends in common. And I trust my friends who think that other people are, when they tell me that so-and-so is a good person. But then you look at what politics is doing to some of these people. Um, just sort of, you know, like the, the, the Paul Pelosi stuff in particular is just a perfect illustration of the damage that partisanship and this, this, this sort of Trump style politics is doing to people's souls. Um, and I'm so glad that Glenn Youngkin has apologized twice now, once publicly the same day, and then in a handwritten note to Nancy Pelosi, because it's, it's, it, we should encourage that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, you, you look around and you can see how, um, I mean, look at Dinesh. I've known Dinesh for 30 years, you know, and like, I, 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 maybe he was always just a con man um, and a huckster. I don't think that's the case. Um, but like, I just don't believe that you can, you know, it's sort of like my, my, you know, the reason why I wanted J.D. Vance to lose probably more than any other Senate candidate is I only know, I, I think I only met him once, um, don't know him well, uh, but I have lots of friends who know him really well. And they all like him and respected him. Um, I think, you know, his book showed real humanity and grace and the transformation that he has gone through. There are only two explanations for it. Either it's sincere, which is really troubling, or it's not, which is really damning. And, um, and I, oh, and like, so speaking of JD fans, like, I think it's hilarious, you know, like, uh, I don't know if he meant it as a, as a mild shot at me, but, uh, Rod Dreher writing from his, uh, Hungarian exile, self-imposed exile, um, uh, possibly subsidized exile. I don't know. Talked about, uh, someone sent me this clip, uh, this cut, uh, excerpt from something he wrote. I haven't read it. I try not to read Rod on straight politics stuff because I like Rod a lot and I don't want to get into a lot of fights with Rod. Um, I, I did some of that back when he was at NR and I still regret how he did it got at times. Um, and I like the guy sincerely. And so getting into spats with him is just not of much interest to me. Um, but, uh, you know, he has this, there's this line where he says, you know, the future of American political conservatism in America and in, in the United States, blah, 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 is with uh, DeSantis, totally defensible position, and J.D. Vance and maybe one other person, uh, not with the old guard of, of remnants of this and remnants of that. And like, was he taking a shot at? Me and the podcast, The Remnant, maybe, maybe not. Uh, intellectually, it's still sort of a shot across, you know, my bow, even if it wasn't aimed at me. And while I think it is perfectly fine to talk about how Van, uh, about how uh, DeSantis may be, you know, the future, at least in the short term of uh, Republican politics or even conservative politics, and you know, again, I, I'm not sure that that's the case. I just think it's a perfectly legitimate mainstream point of view, uh, particularly for the short term. 
that, you know, DeSantis is a rising star in the Republican Party. Um, I'm not sure that DeSantis is the guy that Rod and some of his biggest fans think he is. My own view on DeSantis is that a lot of the very online culture war um, boob bait stuff that he does, that's the fake Ron DeSantis. And the real Ron DeSantis is the guy who got that bridge built, rebuilt and repaired really quickly. I think he is a policy nerd um, with very low um, EQ, you know, emotional intelligence. Um, uh, people tell me he's very socially awkward in a room, um, but he does his homework. And politicians who do their homework um, get, you know, an automatic uh, passing grade from me. Um, this is something I'm talking about for a very long time. I cannot stand politicians who don't do their homework because the homework is the easy part. Finding the charisma to connect with audiences is the hard part if you don't have it. Um, but reading your briefing books and, and doing your due diligence, that is your minimal patriotic, patriotic obligation. And DeSantis does it. He's good at that stuff. He's a, he's a good governor. Um, I don't like everything he's done. I don't like the way he plays to um, the Twitter mobs and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, so be it. I'll take him 11 times out of 10 over Trump without even thinking twice about it. And I think it would be a huge positive step for the country and the party to have him win. But I don't know that he's the future of conserv political conservatism. But anyway, that's a colorable argument. I do think it's funny that people think that J.D. Vance is the future of political conservatism because Vance, first of all, so Trump won Ohio by eight points. Last I looked, Vance carried Ohio, carried his race by six points. So he underperformed Trump in a pro-Trump state. Mike DeWine, last I looked, I think, won by 26 points. DeWine beat Trump's uh, margin by more than threefold and by Vance's by almost fivefold. And DeWine is a boring aging, wonky, uh, vanilla Republican politician. Um, uh, you look all around at the politician, the kinds of Republicans that did really well, it's because they are not buying into this, uh, you know, Rod's vision of the future of conservatism. Um, I understand that if you have a man crush on Victor Orban, and the, and you think that the politicians who tickle the same erogenous zones, um, uh, you're going to think that the same politicians who tickle those same erogenous zones are the future. Um, but I don't think Viktor Orban is the future of anything. And I don't think anything that he is the future of um, is transferable to the United States of America. And, um, um, and I just think there's an enormous amount of wish casting when it comes to how people talk and think about the future of conservatism and the future of the Republican party kind of thing, um, which gets me back to this straight line rejection thing. Uh, I don't know what the future holds. Um, you, there are all sorts of exogenous events that can happen in the next two years that can completely alter the political landscape. Um, and if you look around, if you look at the last 10 years, Anytime you made some sort of 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, 
anytime you made a straight line prediction based upon current events about what the political future held, um, 90% of the time you'd have been wrong. Um, and so the trick is to stop trying to get on some express express train to the future that you want and just live with sort of intellectual honesty and integrity in the here and now. And um, because you don't know how the cards are going to come up down the road, bad mixed metaphor. Um, so all you can do is, you know, this is sort of gets the Yuval's thing about the difference between hope and, and uh, optimism, um, which I didn't really appreciate. And I even criticized somewhere. Um, and then I realized I had a sort of an epiphany last week when I was writing about how democracy wasn't on the ballot. Um, despair is like one of the gravest sins because I was reading up on it um, in Christian theology. Uh, despair is one of the great, one of the, you know, what some call the, one of the unforgivable sins because it denies the possibility of redemption. It denies the possibility of hope. And in that theological tradition, hope is, is not optimism. It is a way of orienting yourself, of opening your heart to the possibilities of redemption and salvation um, despair is saying there is no hope. And so I, I kind of now have come around to Yuval's distinction here because what hope implies in this sense is like you live a good and decent life that you think will be pleasing to God or just in accordance with your own conscience and morals. Um, and you take your opportunities to do good where and when you can without any arrogant certainty about what the future holds, right? Just, just live and be a decent person fighting for the kind of world that you want to live in. So much of our politics, when you look around, it's, it's people trying to skip that step. and talk about the inevitable this and the inevitable that often in a way that places them in a position to benefit from it. Um, um, you know, so much of the, you know, the garbage, but I, I should probably stop throwing people under buses. Um, but so much of the sort of, you know, new right radicalism stuff um, just feels entirely like, um, those guys like on CNBC, I think they call it, you know, talking your book where you make predictions about the market that if they came true would be good for your portfolio. And I think that that's just a corrosive and corrupting way to think about politics and to think about life. Yes. Would I, um, very much like a universe where Republicans just won the election because Doug Ducey, who I think is arguably the best governor in the country, not Ron DeSantis, um, but Doug Ducey and, and Chris Sununu and, um, and Pat Toomey and all of those guys won. Yes, I would rather live in that world. But I don't think anybody who listened to The Remnant, right, <laughs> um, 
thinks that I have spinning that kind of future in the hopes of making it a, um, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm hopeful that the Republican Party and conservatism can get back to that place. But um, it takes work and it takes um, an openness to the reality of the political moment, which I think is sort of inherent to the name the remnant. It's like you're recognizing that at this current moment, things aren't going your way. But the whole point is, you know, David likes to point out the whole point of the term remnant is that it's both about ending and beginning. It's the seed for renewal. And I got to say, you know, like I got a lot of people saying, don't you feel vindicated by all this? And yeah, I do a little. Um, But I'm more hopeful after these midterms that conservatism can right itself, that people can realize that a lot of these people who've been telling them what they want to hear have been doing it for their own selfish purposes and to stuff their pockets. You know, that's the Dinesh model. People want, people want permission to believe the election was stolen. Let's come up with something that's kind of difficult to refute, but also total bullshit that gives them something to say to back up what they already believe and what they want to hear. Um, I kind of feel like some of that has, that fever has, has, is running its course. I'm, and I am hopeful to be part of the effort to see that it becomes, that it gets totally in the back, in the rear view mirror, but I'm not predicting that. Um, and things can certainly go backwards again. I mean, we'll see what happens when Trump, if, if, and when Trump announces on the 15th that he's going to run again, I, you know, as I said, I don't know if it's likely that we're seeing the end of the Trump ta- chapter, it's more possible than ever. And that's cause for hope, at least for people who sort of get what I'm trying to do. So with that, I want to say thanks to everybody. Um, there was some other stuff I probably should have gotten to, but I didn't. And I hope hopefully this audio works. Apologies in advance if it's, if it's weird or bad in some way. And um, I'll talk to you next time. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.